All right, Lise, thank you. And we are continuing our series uh, through this uh, study of the life of the early followers of Jesus in the book of Acts. Uh, it's called On Fire, and it covers about the first 30 years of the history of the church from the time that Jesus uh, was risen from the dead. He appeared to his disciples, and then before he ascended in, into heaven, he's on the mountain there, the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and he tells his followers the last words of Jesus. He says, but you, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses beginning right here in Jerusalem, and that message is going to spread out to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that was the promise that Jesus made before he ascended up into heaven. The disciples, they go back to Jerusalem, they pray. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, which we saw two weeks ago. And on the day of Pentecost, there was this great miracle where religious pilgrims, the Jews from all over the Roman Empire, who were gathered in Jerusalem for that festival in late spring, they all heard the praises of God in their own native languages, not in Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew, but in their own native languages from the countries that they came to. So there's the miracle. They all crowded together. They said, what does this mean? What is going on? Peter got up to preach, and he says, it's because Jesus is risen from the dead. He is now ascended into heaven, vindicated himself as the true Messiah, and uh, God has sent his Holy Spirit, and that's the miracle that you're witnessing today. God has made this Jesus, whom you guys crucified, you rejected as your Messiah. God made him both Lord and Christ. And, and of course, the people said, what do we do? How do we get right with God? And Peter said, you need to repent you need to stop going in the wrong direction. You need to turn around and go back to God. You need to come back to him with all of your heart and ask for his forgiveness. And if you do and you declare your loyalty to Jesus, it says repent and be baptized. And to be baptized or to be immersed underwater as an identification with Jesus' death, like he went into a grave and he came up out of the grave we go down into the water, we die to our old way of life, we come out of the water to a new walk, a new way of life. So Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the people heard that message and 3,000 of them said, yes, I am willing to commit my life to follow Jesus. They did. The church was born. 120 believers became 3,120 believers in one day. Now that's church growth. That's pretty awesome. I don't even know where we'd put all the people if 3,000 people came to us in one day, but it was pretty amazing. And then we said, okay, last week the question was, well, if all those people are now forming this new faith community, how are they going to grow? How are they going to work and live together and grow in their new faith in Christ? And it says in Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship or to creating friendships with each other, to get to know each other beyond just the perfunctory, hey, how you doing? I'm good. How's your week? Good. I mean, that's not a real deep friendship, is it? So they were building deeper friendships through Bible study, through the apostles' teaching, through the fellowship, through the breaking of bread, celebrating communion together when they gathered, remembering Jesus' great sacrifice for them, and to the prayers and they were praying together. And it's interesting. You've heard some prayers. You've prayed along with us 
as we have prayed from up here in the platform today in our weekend service. But the question might be, where do you get an individual uh, prayer request answered? Where do you get a prayer request about your health or your finances or your relative or somebody that is in your family and they are far away from God and you want to pray for their salvation? Where do you get individual prayers like that? You don't get them in rows like this. You get them in circles. And so the, these new believers, they worship together corporately, but they also worship together in circles, in what we call life groups. And so what we said in our action point from last week was every good follower of Christ needs to participate in at least two things every week. You need to come and participate in the corporate worship in our weekend service, and you also should be involved in a circle of friends in Christ. You gather together to do Bible study for friendship, for eating a meal together, for praying for each other, for doing life together as we are all followers of Jesus Christ. So weekend service in rows, life group gatherings in circles. And now the church kept on growing and it's ready for its next big phase of growth. And God is going to bring another big phase of growth to the church with a miracle. So we're going to witness, we're going to see a miracle in the scripture today. It happened on a regular day, a normal day. And here we are in Acts chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along in verse 1. It says, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service. FYI about the prayer services. In the temple, they had three times of prayer for the corporate uh, body of the Jews. They would get together in the temple in Jerusalem three times a day. The first one was at 9 o'clock in the morning, and the second one was at 3 in the afternoon, and the third time was at sunset. So at 3 in the afternoon, the middle prayer service of the day, Peter and John are together walking in from wherever they were around Jerusalem. They're walking into the temple courts, the temple area, three o'clock prayer service. And I noticed two things about this verse. You see, it's Peter and John, and you said they were on their way to the temple one afternoon. The first thing I noticed is they were going to a prayer meeting, and it was a normal part of their weekly routine for Peter and John. They were on their normal walking route. It was in the course of their normal day, but this day was not going to turn out to be normal, not where Jesus gets involved. You know, I think in the course of our normal day, as we're going about our normal business, I think that God sometimes gives us opportunities to serve Him, to speak well of Him, to touch another life on His behalf during the course of our normal day. The question is, do we look? Our, is our spiritual antenna up? Do we even notice when a God-given opportunity expresses itself? And if that opportunity does present itself, are we ready? Are we ready to do something when that opportunity comes along? God was about to take this ordinary day for Peter and John, ordinary day of going to a prayer meeting, and he was going to turn it into an extraordinary day. So they're on their way normally to their normal routine of prayer at 3 o'clock in the temple area. Second thing I notice about this verse is it's Peter and John. It wasn't just Peter by himself. It wasn't just Peter the great fisherman, the apostle. It wasn't just John, the writer of the Gospel of John and, and, and Revelation and many other New Testament writings. These were pillars in the Christian faith. These were apostles, but neither one of them were doing ministry alone. They were doing ministry together. 
When the church is described in Acts chapter 2, it, it talks about them going to the temple together to, to worship. It talks about them meeting in these circles, these life groups from house to house. They were meeting there together. They were doing life together, and that's where the power is in the Christian church. Jesus sent out his disciples when he sent them to go out and, and get their feet wet in ministry. He sent them out two by two. Why is that? Well, Ecclesiastes tells us, it says, you know what? Two are better than one. Two are better than one. Didn't we say that in our marriage vows? Two are better than one for they have a good return for their work. When the one falls down, what does the other do? Ah, too bad. No, when the one falls down, the other one can help that person up, right? That's what ministry in teams is about. John Maxwell says, teamwork makes the dream work, right? And it certainly happened this way for Peter and John. So they, these two are doing ministry together. They're in the normal part of their day doing what they normally do in their Christian activity. And something extraordinary is going to happen. So it says, verse 2, As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate. The one that was called beautiful. So he could beg from the people going into the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. So let's see what the setting is. What, where are we? What are the characters? What is happening right now? We're in the temple area. We're in the part of the temple. And I don't know if you knew this, but the temple has different areas. On the outermost part of the temple, the outer walls, what is directly inside the outer walls of the Temple Mount area was called the Court of the Gentiles. Do you believe that God... The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of, of the Jewish people that he had in mind, even in building the temple area, to have an area where even people who were not Jewish could go and pray. That's because God had foreshadowed that he was going to reach the entire world beginning in Jerusalem as God's people were his witnesses going out from that holy city to the rest of the world. And so even in the temple area, there's a court of the Gentiles. As you go further inward to the temple area where the, where the temple was itself, where you have the, 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 the basin where the priests would wash their hands, where they would offer the sacrifices to God, where you go inside the temple building and there's this holy of holies where twice a day the priests would offer their incense and their prayers to God. And then only once a year, as you went into the innermost part of the temple, what's called the Holy of Holies, only once a year, and only the high priest could go into that room once a year, only on the Day of Atonement, and offer a blood sacrifice, sprinkling on the altar of the Ark of the Covenant for the sins of God's people. That was the that was, it, it was so exclusive from the inside out, and it became more inclusive because it became from, from uh, only the high priest to only a few priests to only a number of priests. Then it was the court of the men. You had to be a Jewish man to be in that area. And then outside that area was the court of the women. And then outside that area was the court of the Gentiles. So in this temple area, now you're at the court of the Gentiles, and you're now going into this gate that was called Beautiful from the area of the Gentiles to the court of the women. I think it was a pretty strategic area for this lame man to be placed because Jewish men and Jewish women had to go through that gate to get to where they were going inside the temple area. 
And so this man knew that, and he knew that if people were going into the temple to pray, they were probably God-conscious. They were probably in a, Lord, I need you to do something for me. That's why I'm praying. And if maybe if, if uh, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. And so this man was there, laying there, waiting for alms for the poor, hoping for a coin. Peter and John approached the temple area. And here's what I really think. In the course of a normal day, in the course of a normal day, what Peter and John probably did is what you and I would probably do. When we see a beggar on the road or we see a homeless person or we see a person who has an obvious need, sometimes it's just easier to look the other way. Just to look the other way and keep on walking and la, 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 I didn't even notice that person. And then you go about your business on the, on the rest of the day. But what happens to that person? The person doesn't get noticed they don't get taken care of. We, sometimes we try, sometimes we consciously try not to even see people like that. The truth is a lot of times we don't see people like that. Sometimes it's unpleasant to look at suffering right in the face. Isn't it easier to turn away? Isn't it easier just to look off in a different direction and ignore it? Human hurt is hard on the eyes. What about the dusty cheeks of the Syrian refugee or the children who are starving in Sudan and Ethiopia? What about the homeless people around us? Do we ever really stop and see them? If we were like Jesus, we would. Jesus was at a dinner party. He got invited by this real strict Pharisee religious guy named Simon. Simon was checking out the new prophet, the new itinerant preacher in town. Hey, come on over to my house for dinner. So Simon has a dinner party. Jesus is there. There's all these religious strict Pharisees around the table with Simon and Jesus. And this lady comes in and she crashes the party. And she is a woman, the way Luke describes her, she had lived an immoral life. I don't know if she was a prostitute. I don't know what her occupation was. But she came and she stood at Jesus' feet and she started crying and then she noticed that her tears were falling on Jesus' feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. And the only thing Simon in his mind can say is, wow, if this guy Jesus really was a prophet, he would know what kind of a hussy, what kind of a streetwalker, what kind of a reject person that is and Jesus would not allow her to touch him. And right in the middle of that thought, Jesus, who knows the thoughts of our hearts and minds, Jesus says, Simon, there's something I want to say to you. And he tells him this story about forgiveness, a forgiving of a debt. And then he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you really see her? Because if you really saw her, you'd see that she's more than that label that you just put on her. It says in Matthew 9 that when Jesus saw the multitudes of people... That he was filled with compassion for them because they were weary and they were scattered. They were like sheep without a shepherd. The beauty of Jesus is that not only does he really see people, he really notices everyone. He sees people, he sees them in their need, and he's willing to do something about it. He's willing to do something to help them. How about us? How about us who claim to be Christ followers? Does your compassion for somebody ever stir you to action? So here's this man for 40 years or more. He's been crippled from birth. He's been laying here for years and years at the entrance of the temple. Still a Jewish man. Still a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Yes, he was lame from birth, but that wasn't his fault that he couldn't walk. Most people walking into the prayer meeting, even Peter and John some days up until this day, most of the people just looked the other way or kept on walking. Some of them may have dropped a coin into his lap, but not Peter and John. This day was going to be different. Something unexpected was going to happen at 3 o'clock that afternoon. And so now we're getting ready for one of God's divine setups. And so verse 4 says, Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. And the man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. If, if I was begging for money and somebody said, look at me, my immediate thought would be, wow, this ain't going to be a penny or a nickel or a dime or a quarter. This isn't even going to be a $1 bill. This is probably going to be something good. This could be a $5 bill. This could be a $10. This could be a 20 Maybe he's going to drop a Benjamin in my lap. That would be amazing, right? So he said, look at us. And this guy's like, okay, man, what do you got for me? You got some money for me? And Peter says to him, which I think is kind of funny, silver and gold, I don't have. And I can imagine the man's first re response is, then why did you ask me to look at you? What, what do you care? If you're not going to give me any money, then what are you asking me to look at you for? And I think Peter is going to say, man, I've got something way better for you than a coin or two. You want some money? Well, that's good. But how about the use of your legs? Hmm, are you ready for this? And then Peter says to him, in the name of Jesus, in the authority of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth I tell you, rise up and walk. And then it says in verse 7, Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and, and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. And he jumped up and he stood on his feet and he began to walk. Can you imagine those first steps for a man who'd never walked in his life? Be, you ever see those giraffes that are born? You know, in their, their first few minutes, the, the mommy giraffe has to pick them up and say, you got to start getting on your feet because those predators are out there. And you see them kind of stumble around and making their first steps. This man's feet and ankles were instantly healed. He begins to walk. And then walking and leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. Wow, what a, what a scene that must have been. Peter and John did this very healing through the Holy Spirit's power. It wasn't through their own power. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it was at the prompting of the Holy Spirit that they did this. And later on, they're going to make that clear in the story. So the Lord Jesus takes this moment to choose to heal this lame man who is begging through the hands of his servants, Peter and John. And miraculously, his feet and ankles and knees, they instantly become functional. They instantly become strong again. Listen to what Max Lucado writes about this story in his book. It's called Outlive Your Life. He says, after a careful first step or two, then this man skipped a jig and parading and shouting and waving the mat on which he lived. Woohoo! And he says, the crowd thickened around the trio now. And as they did, the two apostles laughed as the beggar danced. What a scene. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, when he was foreseeing the messianic age, when all of these healings would take place, when the reverse of the curse would begin to happen in the messianic age, Isaiah wrote, and the lame will leap like a deer, 
That's what this man was doing. He was jumping around like a deer. He was walking and leaping and praising God. And what did that miracle do? What was the effect of that miracle on all the people in the temple area? All the people who had seen this guy, by the way, many times. It says all the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. And when they realized that he was the same lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade, this place in the temple where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. So now this miracle creates a crowd, and the crowd wants to know what's going on, and the crowd wants to know what it means. You know, in John's gospel, every time there's a miracle, John calls it a miraculous sign. The miraculous sign. What is the purpose of a sign? A sign always points to something. In this case, this miraculous sign of the healing of this lame man is going to point the people to say, Jesus really is the Messiah. Jesus really is the Son of God. He really is your Savior, and you need to stop thinking about Him in any other way than that. That's what Peter's going to do. And what's beautiful is this miracle then gives a springboard for Peter and John to be able to talk to another large crowd, just like they talked to that huge crowd back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost because of the miracle of languages that got everybody's attention Peter was able to speak to them. Now this miracle of the lame man being healed gives Peter and John this platform to be able to speak to the crowd. They had cared for this man. They looked at him. They didn't just pass him by. They saw him. And in their compassion and in God's timing of the miracle, they raised him up. And now he's walking and leaping. And this is great. And so the real, what it reminds me of is something that I used to think John Maxwell originated. John Maxwell is this great motivational speaker. But the, this phrase is actually attributed to President Teddy Roosevelt. And Roosevelt said this. He says, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. You guys have heard that phrase before? Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. This crowd was not going to give Peter and John the time of day unless they saw how much they cared for this man and the miracle that Jesus had done through their ministry, through their lives to heal this man. And now that they've seen how much they care, now this crowd is suddenly interested. Hey, what do you know? What can you tell us? What is the meaning of all this? We're saying the Jewish crowd. And so Peter, I love this translation in the New Living Translation, verse 12. It says, Peter saw his opportunity. This is what's so great about a guy like Peter. He notices, he says, what's, what this crowd is gathering, this is a golden opportunity. And just like in Acts 2 with the crowd at Pentecost, Peter's going to take advantage of it. So he addresses the crowd. He's got this large audience now, to, and he's ready to share the gospel with them. God has done this miracle, and now Peter wants to point them to their Messiah. Now, what about us? Think about us today. What about you and me? If God ever gives us an opportunity to help somebody, if God ever gives us an opportunity to pour out and extend compassion in somebody's life to the point where maybe somebody notices and somebody says, why are you doing this? Or what is it about you? What, what is, you have something. I don't know what it is. What is it that you have? If we get an opportunity like that, would we be able to seize that opportunity? Would we take that opportunity and use it to speak well of Jesus, to share his good news? 
If God is giving you an opportunity to speak for Him, would you have the courage? Would you have the right words to say in that right moment? Are we prayed up? In other words, are we saying, God, I pray for an opportunity like that. I pray that in the course of my going around in the day, I pray for an opportunity to show people how much I care, and maybe they'll care how much I know. And help me to share you with them if that opportunity comes. Are we prayed up, and are we looking for those kind of divine opportunities, those appointments that God will put in our path? So Peter takes advantage of this, and he says, people of Israel... What is so surprising about this? Why do you stare at us as though we, in other words, Peter and John, as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors. Peter's saying, I'm a Jew just like you, and I have the hope of Israel just like you. It's the God of our ancestors who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus. And now what Peter's going to do is he's going to remind him. He's going to say, you know what? Uh, you got to remember, you remember what you did with Jesus? You didn't really give him a, a welcome mat, did you? Yeah, maybe when he walked into Jerusalem or he rode in on the donkey, you said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it wasn't uh, just a few days later when you're rejecting him before Pilate and you're saying, give us Barabbas to be released and take Jesus and go crucify him. Yeah, you guys did that. And so Peter had to remind the crowd of their guilt. And what that reminds me of, I don't know if, it, if you thought about that, but in the course of sharing the good news, we call it good news because it means that we can be forgiven and have a new life in Jesus. And we can have purpose for living. That's really good news. But sometimes the good news has to be bad news before it's ever good news. And what I mean by that is in order for a person to realize their need for a Savior, they have to realize that you and I are all sinners. And I don't know what your brand of sin is. I know what my brand of sin is. And I know why I need to be forgiven of the bad things that I've said and done and my moral foul-ups, all the things that I need forgiveness for. But I needed to know that before I would ever look for a solution to my problem. I needed to know that I was outside of God's family because of my wrongdoing, because of my rebellion, because of my independent attitude. I didn't want him to be God of my life. I wanted to do my own thing. And so that attitude the Bible calls sin, sin is lawlessness, it says in 1 John. And that attitude is what estranges us from God and alienates us from him. And so we're sinners in need of a Savior. And Peter is reminding of the Jews of that. He's saying, you guys don't forget this. This is the same Jesus, the, the one that God glorified, his holy servant Jesus. That's the same Jesus that when he was here walking among us only a few months ago, it's the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate. But despite Pilate's decision to release him, you rejected this holy righteous one and you demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Remember when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses? In this case, it's literal. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So he says all that. He brings the guilt on the people. But he says, you know what? That doesn't have to be the end of the story, because even though you did this, people, you did it in ignorance, and you did this according to God's foreordained plan because you guys 
have a mistaken idea that when you're looking for the Messiah, you're thinking he has to be the conquering hero. He's the one who has to come in and militarily defeat the Romans and bring independence for Israel and restore the glory of the kingdom of Israel just like it was in King David's time. You're looking for that kind of Messiah and you overlooked all the other scriptures, you overlooked all the other prophecies that the prophets had foretold about the Christ, about the Messiah, who actually had to suffer, who had to die. And I just want to give you two examples of that. The most obvious ones, there's Isaiah chapter 53, where it talks about the man of sorrows. It talks about the suffering servants. It's talking about the, the Messiah who, who was despised and rejected of men. The Messiah, uh, it says he was acquainted with the bitterest grief. And it says in Isaiah 53, we turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. He was wounded. But you know what? He says he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. This is 700 years before Jesus ever came on the scene. Who's he talking about? He was whipped and we were healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own, and yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. There's the suffering servant, the Messiah. In Daniel, in his prophecy, 500 years before Christ, Daniel's not even living in Israel. Daniel's over in exiled in Babylon. Daniel lived all of his adult life away from the land of Israel in exile during those 70 years. That God was judging Israel. And, and Daniel writes this uh, in Daniel chapter 9. And the prophecy that he received from God, it says, the time From the time given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes would be a certain number of years. And if you do the math, it comes out to exact year, the exact month, the exact day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. It's an amazing prophecy. From the time that that comes, then, the, then it says the anointed one was going to be killed. The anointed one would be cut off. And the, and the appearance at first was the, even though the anointed one would come to Jerusalem and he would get killed and cut off, the appearance would be appearing to have accomplished nothing. And if you were around Jerusalem during that time, on what we call Good Friday, the day Jesus was crucified, Friday night and Saturday, the thoughts of the apostles, the thoughts of anybody who, who ever thought well of Jesus and might have thought he was the Messiah was, wow, he comes into Jerusalem and within five days he's dead and he's dead and buried. It looks like he accomplished nothing before the resurrection happened on Sunday morning, before he was vindicated. And God would not let his holy ones see decay. And God allowed Jesus to be raised from the dead and prove that he really was the Messiah. So my point is, by showing you these, these two passages from the Old Testament, is to say it's, there are plenty of places where God foretold the sufferings of his Christ, of his Messiah, before he would enter into his glory. And the Jews needed to know that. And he said, you put him to death, but God raised him to life. And then he says, you know what? You did it in ignorance. You did it according to God's ordained plan. But you know what? It's not too late for you. And what do you need to do? Just like in Acts chapter 2 where they said they were cut to the heart. They were convicted deep in their hearts. What do we do? We've blown it with God. How do we ever get right? And Peter says to them once again, you know the solution is? You repent. You repent 
and you turn from your sins and you turn back to God so that you can be cleansed from your sins. That is the message of Peter to the people in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount 2,000 years ago. It's the same message for us today. How do you get right with God? The very first thing you do is you hear the message of Christ, you believe the message of the gospel, and you turn. You turn away from wherever you were walking before, and you turn back to God in faith, and you, you're willing to go public, you're willing to confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and you're willing to publicly declare your loyalty to Him by being immersed in the waters of baptism. And when you do that, God says times of refreshing are going to come, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and one day Christ is going to come again, and you're going to be part of that resurrection. You're going to be part of living with God eternally forever in heaven. That's the promise Peter is telling the Jewish people then. It's the promise that we still have today. So what are our action points? Just, just to sum up, what, what have we talked about today? There was a team of Christ followers, just a team of two, Peter and John. And they gave an honest look at this man in need, this lame man laying there at the beautiful gate in the temple. And it led that looking at him, and when the timing was right from God's Spirit, that led to a miraculous helping hand. That led to a Spirit-filled conversation where Peter addressed this large crowd of people who wanted to know what it meant, and he told them about God. He told them about the possibility of forgiveness and eternity. And, and God obviously answered that prayer because it says in Acts chapter 4, the next chapter, looking back on, well, how has the church grown? How has the church grown since Peter, uh, since those 3,000 people were baptized back in, on the day of Pentecost? And now it says in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are now in the temple area and they get arrested because they're creating a, a commotion and the authorities don't like what they're doing. And, and we're going to talk next week about how to handle opposition Peter and John are in jail, but Luke writes that the number of men, remember 3,000 people in the church? Now Luke writes in Acts chapter 4, the number of men in the church had grown to 5,000. And, you know, in a lot of churches, there's, there's like three women for every two men, or two women for every, you know, two girls for every boy, just like the Beach Boys song. There are, there are a lot, there's usually more women in the church than men. And if there's 5,000 men, you can imagine how many women and how many children. This church is just exploding in growth. It says in Acts 2 that the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. God is using these miracles. He's using the people. And God's people, these apostles, they're, they're seizing the moment. They're taking the opportunity that God gives them, and they're using it to spread his good news. And so what about the opportunities that God gives to you and me each week? What are our opportunities when we're going on in the normal course of life and our normal daily routines? What are the possibilities? The first thing we need to do, the first action point is we need to see people as they really are. See people as they really are. And then when we see them and we notice them, ask God and say, Lord, is there anything that I can do? What can I do to help them? What can you do to help them? Just like Peter and John did. And then if, they, if somehow that helping them, that extension of compassion makes any difference in their life and they say thank you or whatever, why are you doing this? Take that moment, take that opportunity and use it to share Jesus with them. That's the second point. 
seize that opportunity to share Jesus with them. When, when we do that, we're going to be acting like Peter and John. We're going to be imitating those believers who turned the world upside down, who brought explosive growth to the church that by the end of the first century, the Christian faith had covered the entire Roman Empire, the entire Mediterranean world, because these guys were living 100% for Jesus. Would that you and I live the same. Amen? Let's pray together. Let's bow our heads for prayer.